Good morning. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Jeanette Didios. Approximately 80% of Native American families on reservations had at least one child in foster care. Prior to the creation of the Indian Child Welfare Act, also referred to as ICWA in 1978, Native children were routinely removed from their families and tribes by adoption agencies and placed into non-Native homes where they would be denied access to cultural customs. ICWA is intended to protect the best interests of Indian children and to promote the stability and security of Indian tribes and families. In March of this year, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed into legislation the Indian Family Protection Act in New Mexico that will further reinforce laws made in ICWA and also keep Native children with their primary families. In recent years, individual parties in states like Texas, Indiana, and Louisiana have brought cases to the U.S. Supreme Court to chat excuse me, to challenge and even dismantle ICWA. Some are calling the current one before the court, Brackeen versus Holland, the most significant challenge the law has faced. On this morning's Let's Talk New Mexico, we're talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act. If the U.S. Supreme Court deems this law unconstitutional, how might that impact tribal sovereignty, tribal-owned business enterprises and lands, and how it could affect New Mexico Native children in foster care? What do you want to know about the Indian Child Welfare Act? Have you or known anyone who has dealt or been in the welfare system here in New Mexico as a Native American child, parent, or guardian? Let us know. Join our conversation this morning by calling 505-277-5866. That's 505-277-KUNM. You can also send us questions or comments to letstalk at KUNM.org or tweet us with the hashtag letstalknm. Let's get started. I'd like to introduce my first guest, Evelyn Blanchard from Laguna Pueblo and Yaqui Tribe, who has also been a longtime advocate for ICWA, who works as a family and children advocate with the Native Family Study Institute at the University of New Mexico. Welcome to the show, Evelyn. Good morning. So, Evelyn, for our listeners who haven't been following this issue closely, what exactly is the Indian Child Welfare Act? The act is um, an... Is, um, a direction to state agencies and courts uh, to the intent of the act is to pre- to prevent the breakup of the Indian family, and uh, so that requires uh, certain uh, provisions to make so that people understand how to proceed, and the Indian Child Welfare Act provides that. Tribal uh, courts and nations are notified when an Indian child comes into state custody. And after that occurs, there's a procedure about determining the child's uh, eligibility or existing enrollment in a tribe. And that sets sets up further procedures regarding the... <clears throat> proper placement of Native children. When um, the in 1974, when the uh, first hearings were held to begin the uh, development and enactment of the law, there was information gathered by uh, the Association on American Indian Affairs in cooperation with the tribes and. Uh, with the direction of Senator Aberesk uh, to conduct a survey to determine what the status of of -of out-of-home placement of children was at the time. Uh, 
and it was determined that one out of every four Indian children had been removed from his or her, her home, and 85% of those children were living in non-Indian placements, foster homes, institutions, all those kinds of things, not just, uh, not just uh, what's called today a resource family. The um, so uh, the the as it was as it was uh, testified at the hearings by um, Lee Cook. I think Lee is was from um, uh, Red Lake, I believe, and um, he brought to the attention of the panel that if if the continued rate if the rates of of displacement of children continues, we will reach a point when there won't be any of us. And that is a serious problem. I mean, we have a right to live and believe in the way we believe, as does anyone else in this country. And we have been in a struggle with the Conquest, depending on whoever was leading the show at the time, uh, to survive. And we, the children, have a right to be who they are. And the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed to assure that that does not happen except in situations where it's better for the child to be placed somewhere else. But uh, we're tribal members. Uh, we're members of, we're citizens of nations. Uh, we're a people. And throughout this history, to enable us to survive, the various tribal nations have entered into agreements with the United States government and certain uh, promises were made. And the saving of our lives and the continuation of our people is the basis of those promises. It certainly is. And ICWA has been challenged twice before um, before Brockeen versus Holland, right? So why is ICWA before the Supreme Court again, given that it was passed in 1978? What's different about Brockeen versus Holland? Well, I'd like the attorneys really to respond to that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Oh. So oh. Um, for, for you, Evelyn, what is, uh, what is tribal sovereignty and why would that be at risk right now? Well, that, that again is a best answered by, uh, by the attorneys because they, uh, you know, I, I have <clears throat> my opinion. I mean, frankly, if, if, if we're just considered a race, we're not recognized for who we are. And that, uh, that racial uh, definition does not exist in federal Indian law. I mean, that's not part of the deal that we that 
the tribes have made over, over all these years. But I really think the attorneys need to speak to that question. Definitely. So um, lastly, Evelyn, you spent decades helping tribes fight child removal. What was one of the case that stayed with you? Because I know you have a long history in social work, right? Um, I guess uh, one of the one of one of the cases that stands out to me, and and it's important because it was the first uh, ICWA uh, case. Uh, that got national attention, and it was over in Window Rock. Uh, Jeremiah Holloway was the young man's name, and he had been placed with a Mormon family when his mother was having, uh, I think, health issues. This is in 1980, so it's a long time ago. Um, and uh, the family, the Mormon family wanted to adopt uh, Jeremiah, and so, uh, and the adoption was denied along the way, but it came finally to the, to the uh, Navajo Supreme Court, and um, the, um, the, adop the adoption was awarded. However, uh, at the time I was uh, working as a consultant to the uh, DNA uh, advocates, uh, uh, what his name, uh, Sosi, uh, who was a state senator, later a state senator, was uh, one of the attorneys, uh, advocates or attorneys, whatever they're called there, and Brenda Anderson was the other. And so what, despite the fact that we knew that in all likelihood that adoption would be granted, we insisted upon there be no termination of parental rights. And that uh, theme, uh, of course, has continued through, throughout my, uh, through the years I've testified. Great. So thank you again, Evelyn. We commend you for all your hard work. But let's go ahead and move on to our next guest, uh, Cheryl Fairbanks, who works in Indian law as an attorney, a tribal court of appeals justice and peacemaker. Currently, she is the founder and executive director for Sovereignty 360, a peacemaking entity. She is also Kinklet and Simshian from Alaska. Thanks for joining us this morning, Cheryl. Um, we also have uh, Christy Chapman, who is from the Zuni Pueblo and is a guardian and laden for Pegasus, Pegasus Legal Service for Children. Um, she also has a background in nursing and works with the UNM Indigenous Design and Planning Institute. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. Um, thank you, Jeanette. It's good. Thank you for inviting us. This is a very important topic. Yes, definitely. So let's go ahead and um, get into it. Um, like we mentioned before, ICWA was challenged twice before um, with Brackeen versus Holland. Uh, why is ICWA before the Supreme Court again? What's different about Brackeen versus Holland? Well, there have been three um, <clears throat> cases that have made their way up to the Supreme Court. The first one was um, the Holyfield case, Mississippi Band of Choctaw versus Holyfield. And that um, really challenged um, the first challenge to the act. And the Supreme Court really held that that case belonged in tribal jurisdiction. So that was a profound victory for us in Indian country. And and so, you know, now, and there was another case, adoptive couple 
Um, and then now we're with Brackeen and and um, that has was argued on November 9th. And that started in Texas. And, and it's really challenging the constitutionality of ICWA. And um, important also is the challenge to our political status. Um, uh, it's important that we maintain that political status because that status really predates the US Constitution and really is our relationship between the tribes and the United States Constitution. It's different than any other um, uh, classification. And so we're trying to protect that political status of um, our kids and our tribes and, and also to protect the constitutionality of ICWA because it really serves to protect our kids, our families and tribal sovereignty. And then, um, Cheryl, for some of our listeners, could you define what is tribal sovereignty and why would it be at risk here? Um, tribal sovereignty for us as tribal people, um, it's the right of our sovereign governments to protect um, our land base, to protect our people, to govern, to govern um, our citizens and and to protect our children, families, and communities is just a basic tenet of tribal sovereignty. So it's the right for us to make our own laws and um, to enforce and uh, uh, those laws within Indian country. And um, tell me, how big of an impact would occur if ICWA is ruled unconstitutional? If ICWA is ruled unconstitutional, it will undo a lot of um, of uh, the laws that pertain to Indian country, and um, particularly the political status um, section. And if it is unconstitutional, then our children won't have those basic protections of the placement. And it's important that our kids are placed with their own families their extended family or communities um, because, and, and often it's not, the courts don't take into consideration how important it is for kids to maintain that tie to their home, home homelands and to their families because a lot of our kids who have been adopted out are making their way home and they want to stay connected um, to, to their tribes. Um, the, the other thing is research really has shown that kids do better when they're connected to their family and, and their communities. And a lot of our kids who were adopted out uh, really have major, major social issues. They don't belong in the white world or the Indian world, and they're in that gray area. Hey, Cheryl, Where, um, this is very important, and I want to pick up on this. Uh, we unfortunately have to go to a break. So this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Jeanette Didios. We're taking your calls about the Indian Child Welfare Act and the newly established Indian Family Protection Act here in New Mexico. Call us at 505-277-5866. We'll be right back. UNM Health is a proud sponsor of KUNM, offering children and adults personalized cancer care at the Comprehensive Cancer Center. More information at unmhealth.org. 
Please join us in thanking our business and nonprofit underwriters for their continued financial support. Because of their support, our mission will continue as your trusted source of award-winning local news and music. KUNM, powered by you. Composer Nino Rota used to have an office right below a room where students of the double bass practiced their scales. He heard that year after year, so when he wrote a piece featuring the double bass, he playfully included some of those scales. Nino Rota's Divertimento Concertante won the next performance today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. Welcome back. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Jeanette Didios. We're, we're talking to two attorneys who specialize in tribal law, Cheryl Fairbanks and Christy Chapman. So, um, Cheryl, I want to talk about the November 9th hearing with the Supreme Court justices where they heard the first round of testimonies. Were Native Americans being taken seriously? Some court watchers have said that some, some justices had stereotypical and often racist comments about the ICWA case and didn't seem knowledgeable about the issue at hand. What does that say about our justices who might be making a ruling on this case? I think that's, that's a, a real issue. Um, because often our tribal sovereignty and specifically ICWA is misunderstood. And um, uh, it's hard often to have the um, justices really understand how, how our lives will be impacted by ICWA and by the Indian Child Welfare Act if it's deemed to be unconstitutional. Because all the tribes um, that's a common factor to keep our kids, to keep our kids within our um, uh, homelands and within our families. And, and some of the questions, you know, that were asked really showed they didn't understand. Some of them didn't understand what the political status was and really wanted to move it into the race factors. So it would be a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. But there were um, uh, justices such as Sotomayor, who has a better understanding, who her thinking aligns a lot with tribal thinking in terms of caring for our children. And, and she even cited to the Hague Convention in terms of the feds have always dealt with um, family matters. and and how the state often has not taken into consideration um, the culture of the respective tribes. And then um, I want to jump to Christy. An argument was raised that Native American tribes and tribal citizens should be classified as a political group and not a racial group. Why do these two different classifications matter in this case? Is that argument correct? <clears throat> Excuse me. Indeed, I think it, as Cheryl has stated earlier, uh, Native people, we predate the Constitution. And when we were um, in the U.S. courts, the Supreme Courts back in um, 1831 first recognized, um, I guess not first, but recognized as um, political sovereigns. And so with that, we do, as Native people, as Indigenous people, as tribal nations, tribal people, we do carry a political status that um, that grants us that 
distinction. So with when it comes down to ICWA, we have that political status, we have the, the law is not based on race. And with that, um, that argument holds true in terms of we are not a race, we are a political status, which is why other laws like um, that pertain to Indian preference um, are valid um, because again we we do have this political political status that that the courts have recognized and Congress has recognized. And then um, Cheryl, some of the Supreme Court justices implied that it could be in the best interest for Native children to be in white homes rather than their own Native homes. How do you respond to that? I think that's one of the um, errors that is often made um, because uh, we really focus on our core values and how we care for our kids, the love and nurturing we have for our kids. And often um, it, institutional systems or uh, child welfare entities go to economics and um, and try to use um, poverty as as not um, as not be, as the families not being able to raise kids, and so they want to place the children in a white home that may have all the amenities. But one of our important core values is sharing and sharing of space um, and and that collective love of extended family. America justice often does not understand the strength of extended family. And as Evelyn said, not to terminate parental rights, you know, to keep the family intact. And so um, that misunderstanding has really and and lack of cultural competence within uh, child welfare systems really has hurt many of our our children and families because today, after over forty years of ICWA, we're still in non-compliance. So um, we're working carefully state with state tribal relations to strengthen that relationship. So. We're at the table and not just sitting there, but our voice is being heard as to how important it is to follow those placement factors. Um, Jeanette? Yes. I think it's important to um, provide some context, too, about why these kids are in care. Of course, Evelyn. Uh, and um, recently I read a... Uh, uh, statistic. I was operating for many for a long time on fifty percent, but the latest the latest that I read, seventy five percent of the all children, not just native children, all children, uh, are in care largely based on poverty. And so I think that when when we we look at the problems that that we're having with regard to ICWA, I think people need to think about the particular vulnerability of Native families when we make up, what, I think only 4.2 million people in this country. And the fact is, most 
citizens in this country, American citizens in this country, non-citizens too, I would imagine, and have never met an Indian person. So the, that our obscurity also lends to our vulnerability. And so those are, you know, those are phenomen phenomena that just uh, exist in this circumstance. And so, um, you know, it's very difficult for people to understand and very difficult for many people to support. Exactly. I know with the recent census, I know for the longest time, we were less than 1% of the American population. Really think about that. Just in recent terms, um, recent years, we've become 1%. But it's crazy to think about that. We also have an email from one of our listeners from Sharon Yazi. She says, I don't know how many times I've heard a family or of non-Native American descent mention how beautiful this or that Native American child looks. It's troubling and disturbing to hear that. And why did I mention this? I mentioned this because it's all about the look. There is no mention of the potential of the child or anything of that sort. Native American communities and the, their cultures are being attacked because they aren't what non Native American societies consider the right way to live. It is genocide. How do you feel about that, Evelyn? Well, that uh, accusation, if you will, or assertion, if you will, uh, has been made uh, over and over again. And as I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, in regard to Lee Cook's uh, testimony at the uh, at the hearings in 1974. I mean, if you do the math, if our children and our families continue to be as vulnerable as they are, if you do the math, it will be a while, but we'll, we can be gone. And I could point out, I think it was, uh, uh, I think his name is David Wallace Adams, who wrote the uh, that book, uh, Education or Extinction, I think is the title of it. <clears throat> uh, he gives the history in it. He talks about uh, the various efforts of the United States government to assimilate the the Indian people. And when it was finally determined that warfare uh you know, was not being successful, something else had to happen, and education was it. Uh, I read a, a quote that, uh, I can't remember who said it, but this guy mentions that it cost a million dollars a year to kill an Indian, and only $800 to educate one. So, I mean, these are all considerations that have gone on. It's not a matter of saving children at all. Wow, that's surprising. That's really shocking. Um, getting back to sort of the timeline with the Supreme Court, um, Christy, um, what's next on the timeline with for Brockheen versus Holland? When will we know more about this ruling? I think that's the million dollar question. Um, the pro it's a process. And so, you know, we, we've heard folks who, who follow this um, um, cases in the Supreme Court. We've heard 
possibly June, but really it's it's a process. And so like everyone else, we we, we don't know. And then Cheryl, is there anything we can do in support of ICWA? Well, I think one important thing that um, our listeners need to know is the tribes really came together um, uh, in unity. And there were many amicus briefs filed um, by the tribes throughout the country, as well as tribal organizations. And so um, NARF was the lead in that in terms of the briefs. And they have several um, uh, uh, online Twitter and those kind of um, uh, uh, social media that you can access. Also, the National Indian Child Welfare um, uh, organization out of Portland. They have a lot of information and have really brought the nation together to support this. The other thing I really wanted to add is um, outside entities are really, as well as our own tribal people, are really calling ICWA the gold standard, that all children should be treated like children are treated under this law. And so it's an opportunity not just to strengthen the way we do our own child welfare practice, but all child welfare practice. Exactly. And Cheryl, we have a question from one of our listeners. Jerry wants to know more about sovereignty. Why don't Navajo nations have the same standings as other countries, like with diplomats uh, and embassies? Um, well, each one of the tribes is uniquely different. And so um, the sovereignty of the tribe, we're a sovereign within, the so- within a sovereign. And so um, that has always been litigated forever. Um, and, and we have really asserted ourselves always to maintain the right to govern our own people and to protect our own people, to protect our homelands. And so it really also goes to jurisdiction in terms of having our own government. Um, Japanese people don't have their, who live in the United States don't have their own government. Hispanic people don't have their own government. Um, But we as native people do because of our political status that really does predate the US constitution. And, you know, um, uh, there's two parts to it. Well, there's several facets to it, but we have been protecting our sovereignty for so long. Now we're in the mode of exercising our sovereignty, being at that table to make sure our voice is being heard, to make sure our kids are protected, to make sure our environment is protected. The environment knows no boundaries. And so we as tribal people have always been environmentalists and um, it's nothing new to us. And so that's part of sovereignty is to really uh, protect and exercise our rights to um, uh, govern our own people, to make our own laws. And of course, there's an interplay with the state and the federal government. And we like to come to the table what's called government to government so that we're working government to government. And that is always has to be strengthened. And in the state of New Mexico, we really work hard at at working government to government. So it's not just an individual to the state, but it's the Navajo Nation or 
the Pueblo of Pawaki working government to government with the state. So talking specifically to Christy on this, but Cheryl, if you have anything to add, by all means, jump in. But Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham this year signed a law called the Indian Family Protection Act. What is this law and why was it important to establish here in New Mexico? So first of all, just can't thank the governor enough for enacting the law. But the importance and the purpose of the law, one, I think we've already heard from um, Ms. Fairbanks and um, from Ms. Blanchard that from the time of uh, contact, our indigenous people, especially our children, have been attacked. Um, and we heard about ICWA when it was first enacted in 1978. It was also under attack. And still to this day, um, some so many years later, we see it being attacked. Uh, we heard it attacked in um, baby girl, the baby girl case, in the Holyfield case, and now in Brackeen. And so the enactment of the Indian Protection Act was <clears throat> a way to to expand on ICWA into and to make a law here for the states in case Ecuador um, is ruled unconstitutional at the federal level, states by enacting their own version of Equa uh, can continue those protections. And so for the, that's, the, that's the primary reason is Equa is being under attack and to be proactive um, and grateful for a state like New Mexico who does um, was with this law that just passed, working with the tribes to have it enacted. And we want to keep our listeners active in this discussion. What questions do you have on the Indian Child Welfare Act and how it's impacting our state? Call us at 505-277-5866. Or you can tweet us with the hashtag Let's Talk NM. Or you can email us at Let's Talk at KUNM.org. So, Christy, what protections do Native children have with this newly passed law here in New Mexico? One, I think the biggest that I've seen um, first was that when the child is placed in state custody um, and the child is less than three months old, that child cannot be placed in um, in an out of um, out of the placement preferences as set set forth by IFPA. That means the child must remain with an Indian family. Um, that's not included in ICWA, but with the IFPA, um, that's the kind of language that adds in that additional protections for our native kids. That's only one of them. Um, and um, Christy, let's go ahead and take a break right now. We'll get back into the Indian Family Protection um, Act after the break. So you're listening to Let's Talk to Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Jeanette Didios. Um, we'll be back with more with the rest of the guests. So um, stay tuned. <laughs> 
The federal government is providing more than $130 million to help selected tribes relocate because of climate change. At least three are in the process of moving and several others are in the planning stage. We'll hear about the threats tribes are under and how far federal money will get them toward a solution on the next Native America Calling. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. Just imagine the programs and services you can help grow when you donate your vehicle to KUNM. We accept cars, trucks, boats, RVs, and more. It's easy to give and the pickup is free. Our vehicle donation support team is available seven days a week and we'll be happy to answer any questions you may have. Call 888-KUNM-CAR to schedule your vehicle donation today. That's 888-586-6227. Welcome back. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We're talking about what will happen within the state if ICWA gets overturned and how that will impact Native children in welfare. You can. St- there's still time to call. It's 505-277-5866 to share your thoughts. So let's get back to the Indian Family Protection Act within New Mexico. Um, Christy, what happens to the law if the court deems ICWA inconstitutional? Unconstitutional, sorry. If ICWA is deemed unconstitutional, um, again, as stated earlier, we do now have the Indian Family Protection Act. So that is because so that is the the fall fallback that we have in that we will we will not be impacted if ICWA is overturned um, because the state does grant its citizens greater protection uh, than the federal government. So that is what ISPA does for 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 us now for our children for our native children and families. And is there any fallback in regard to the impact in New Mexico as a state in regard to tribal sovereignty if it's unconstitutional? I believe um, Cheryl had touched on that in terms of it does, it will impact us to an extent. There are other, um, other laws that have not been overturned ICWA being one of them will, of course, no doubt, um, give a foothold to attacking other laws that affect tribal sovereignty. Um, and with that, um, I also would like to see, have Cheryl um, provide insight into that arena as well. Yes, of course. Um, Cheryl, your thoughts? Yeah, if, if ICWA is, is struck down, um, it has the potential of really um, uh, and on the ground that Congress exceeded its authority. Um, it really will have an impact on other laws um, intended to benefit us as Native Americans, such as healthcare, environment, religious beliefs, liberties, water rights, tax, economic development. Um, and so this is 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 critical, you know, for um, that's why we're watching it so closely, because it could have far reaching impact. Jeanette. Yes. Um, Evelyn. Uh, one, um, an immediate and direct impact it could have were it declared uh, unconstitutional is the funding that runs through the that 
is appropriated for the uh, for the Indian Child Welfare Act. And uh, there are 12 states in the country that have uh, ICWA laws. Uh, and what what is being proposed by some in the event that uh, that we're uh, we're not successful is that we need to begin to look very closely, and I'm talking about tribal nations, look very closely at the Title IV E funding. And although it's complicated in many places, uh, we, uh, we need to move that way. Um, it may... It, to be able to, for nations to move that way, it may require that they uh, establish that compact status or self-governance status that some of the tribes have that uh, provides for uh, different ways, different avenues for the funds to to be received. Uh, but uh, we have to think about that. Uh, we can't be sure. The only one on the court that really is knowledgeable about Indian law, and many people are placing their high hopes on him that he can educate the other justices uh, beyond the bias that we see, we've heard in the at the hearings, and the fact that you know this this whole episode has got direct connections to some of the most right law firms in the nation. So, I mean, it's very complicated, this, what is going on. But, uh, but we do need to begin to think about other ways about how t we're going we're gonna, to uh, be able to provide services to our people. And I think that's, that it's, it's just like uh, it was uh, then Devil's Lake. Now it's called Spirit Lake. Tribal Chairman Lewis Goodhouse, who appealed to the Association on American Indian Affairs to help with some child welfare matters in North Dakota that kicked this whole thing off. Uh, because in the 60s, when this happened, uh, uh, reservations were very oppressive places. So, I mean, we have, we've lived through a lot, and we certainly can uh, meet the challenges of this of this decision, whether it's in our favor or not. But, uh, you know, we, it's going to be difficult yes. for many. Yes, of course. And we're going to continue this fight. Um, I want to bring in our last guest. Um, he is the former governor of Nambe Pueblo, Philip Perez, and who is now the special projects coordinator for CYFD. Welcome to the show, Governor. Thank you, Tom. Good morning. Thank Good you. Good morning. So I wanted to first discuss your time as governor, and I'm posing the question, why is the continued preservation of culture important for Native children when they're fostered outside the reservation? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Um, the importance of culture um, is really the key to ICWA and IFPA. Um, what we want to do is reinforce that cultural connection with our Native children. There's many times that our families leave our pueblos and our reservations, our communities to better their lives. 
And we want to make sure that the door is always open for them to come back. And in certain cases, there's children and families that get caught up in the, in the welfare uh, protection system. And we want to make sure that that cultural connection is protected, specifically the language. As Native people, language is an oral tradition that's passed down from generations to generations. It's something that cannot be usually taught outside of the community. Without the language, we lose our culture. Without our culture, we lose who we are as individuals, who we are as Native people. So it's very important that we keep that connection. And um, from a Nambe Pueblo perspective, how does your Pueblo view Native children and their role within the tribe? Native children are, are cherished just like everyone else in the tribe. As a former tribal leader, we are the protectors of our community. We are the fathers and mothers of our community from the youngest to the oldest. We are there to nourish them. We are there to, to treat them with respect. Every person in our community holds a certain position. They're key to who we are as Native people. There's times where our children are going to be our future leaders. So it's important that they know our customs, our traditions, so they can lead us, so they can continue to fight for our sovereignty so they can continue to enforce our sovereignty, to practice our sovereignty. And you you mentioned prior to the show an individual who was part of the state's welfare system as a Native American. What happened to him and what role did ICWA play in his life? Yes, um, I don't know specifics to the case. All I know with other, um, through other uh, forums talking about ICWA, uh, there was a scenario of a tribal leader, a tribal governor, that was in the child welfare system. And if it wasn't for ICWA, that connection to a Native family, his Native family would have never been made. And through that connection, he was a governor and served his people well with dignity and pride. So one can only hope that these children that are reunited with her, their families, their extended families, or the communities are going to be future leaders. And there's no telling in what position they're going to serve their people. Exactly. <clears throat> and then um, switching over to your position in CYFD, if ICWA is overturned federally, how does that impact the state and more specifically Native children in the state welfare system? Yes, thank you. Um, again, it's been said by Ms. Fairbanks that ICWA is the gold standard of child welfare. We don't know if the entire federal ICWA is going to be abolished or if only segments of it, portions of it is going to be abolished. But what we do know is that in the state of New Mexico, we've enacted a platinum standard of care which is the Indian Family Protection Act. This Indian Family Protection Act is an act of testimony. It was an act that was tribally led with our tribal leaders, but most importantly, it was an act that was drafted with those with lived experiences. Those 
people, those families that have gone through the system, their voices are what is captured in the Indian Family Protection Act. Now, what the act does is it reinforces the tribal collaboration with the New Mexico tribes and the states by early interventions, early communication between the state and the tribes from the onset of investigations. We are now obligated to work with tribes and identifying who our children are from the onset of investigation. So we can then identify cultural appropriate resources or resources that can help the family so there is no separation, so there is no removal of children. What it also does is IFPA redefines the eligibility of Native children, and it extends to membership. And membership is defined by the tribe's customs and traditions. So it's not enrollment, it's membership. It's those that, um, the way I look at it is, a lot of times enroll, dual enrollment is prohibited by many, many tribes. So if a mother and a father are both members or enrolled members of a tribe, usually a child can only be enrolled in one. So what this does is it broadens that so that both parent sides of the family are now looked at for placement. And, and also, yes, go ahead. Oh, no, con continue. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say what it also does is, is, is it, it promotes active efforts by the state workers for more accountability to ensure that if you look at the preferred placements, it's a hierarchy of placements. Your highest, most best placement of a child is with the family, immediate family, and then extended family, and then community, and it broadens out. But just because a child is placed within the community, there's still efforts that need to be made for that child to be placed with extended family and then with immediate family. So those efforts continue. And then there's also a cultural compact tool within the Indian Family Protection Act. And it's important for tribes to include these cultural compacts within the Indian Family Protection Act. It's included in the, in the court decrees for adoption cases. It's what is important to tribes to ensure that that cultural connection is maintained. And you mentioned that tribal entities are involved in the process. How much involvement do Native American tribes have during the fostering process? We want to make sure that Native communities are involved from every stage of a child welfare case. Again, beginning with investigations and identifying cultural services and resources, identifying cultural placement preferences, identifying um, behavioral health services, just anything that can maintain the culture and tradition of that child, the family, and the community. And um, to follow up, what power, how much power does Native American tribes have in regard to, you know, the fostering process? Are they able to disagree with an adoption? Definitely. Tribes are able to intervene in many, many steps, in many, many facets of a case. Tribes are able to license their own foster placements on and off the reservations. 
Now that's an ex true exercise of tribal sovereignty is whenever a tribe can are able to do that. And um, how is CYFD ensuring that Native American children are fostered outside the reservations, are maintaining their cultural ties? Again, it's just identifying those within a tribe that are a point of contact for the department that we can work with on the onset of investigations and moving forward. That person is critical to how the case moves forward. So we want to ensure that, again, each tribe identifies a point of contact that they can help with those resources. The state, we don't want to be, we know that we're not the experts when it comes to placement and culture. So we have to rely on the tribe to help us with those. And then uh, as a last question to the whole, um, to all my guests, what more could we be doing for native New Mexico native children? Well, actually, I'm so sorry. I think we've run out of time. Um, we've reached the end of the hour. Um, thanks to everyone who called in or tweeted to us. And a big thank you to our guests, Evelyn Blanchard, Cheryl Fairbanks, Christy Chapman, and Governor Perez. We can keep this conversation going on Twitter with the hashtag Let's Talk NM. We're also on Facebook at KUNM Radio. If you missed part of the show, you can stream it online or subscribe to the podcast Let's Talk New Mexico on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll also have the show posted on this episode's page at KUNM.org shortly, along with the list of the resources that were mentioned throughout the hour. Thank you, as always, to our hardworking team. Our engineer is Marino Spencer. Kaveh Movahead handled the phones today. Bryce Dix live tweeted for us, and KUNM News Director Megan Kamrick produced the show. I'm Jeanette Didios for Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.